1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from howstuffworks.com.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Holly Fry. I'm an editor here at howstuffworks.com and across from me is the fabulous talented. Oh, I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And and we are going to resume what we were talking about previously, yes, uh, which is the real Al Swearengen, yes, and we uh, recorded the first part of the podcast in which we kind of talked about the parts of his biography that kind of get glossed over in most accounts of his life. Yes, his, his time, you know, as a pioneer child, and his time riding the rails and learning the trade of a barkeep, and even serving in the Civil War. And when we left off, he was in the Dakota Territories uh, in Custer City. And as Custer City was emptying out and everyone was heading to Deadwood where there had been a gold strike, he followed suit. And that's yes. where we pick up. Yes. Uh, he bought a lot in Deadwood. Yes. And that was early 1876. So it was almost immediately after he got there. Yes. Um, and <laughs> at night he ran a saloon out of a tent on the lot which just sounds completely legitimate as a business. (laughs) Well, it did then. Everything was running out of a tent. Right. Well, and he did eventually make this into an actual permanent structure. Yeah. You kind of have to admire his work ethic because basically he was working at night running the saloon. And then during the day, he was supervising and working on the building of the permanent structure. Right. So he was basically just working around the clock to build his business. Yes. Even if it was maybe not the most noble of enterprises in some ways, I have to admire his work ethic. Right. Well, and as we talked about last time, he had at this point a pretty extensive law-breaking history. Yeah. He had some trouble with entering into business contracts that he really had no intention of uh, fulfilling his part of. Right. So while he was trying to get this new business off the ground, he had to do an unfortunate stint in prison. <laughs> When it finally caught up. Yeah. We mentioned it in the the previous episode in part one that he had been charged for selling alcohol in what was then referred to as Indian country. Yes. Uh, he was selling spirituous liquors. And so he had run from that to Deadwood. But, of course, he didn't go that far. So it caught up to him pretty quickly. And he did a little, little bit of time in Yankton right. in prison. And that caused him to, to miss out on a pretty important event in what would become... His business. Yes. Uh, which is the arrival of the first prostitutes. Uh, he was not there that day because he was in jail. Yeah. Uh, but. Although it was right before he got out. It was. I kind of wonder if he was in jail just being like, I'm missing all the fun. Um, this <laughs> so was July of 1876. The first prostitutes arrived. People were extremely happy about this. There was cheering in the streets. Yes. Because remember, these are. Prospector towns were yes. almost entirely men. Not they kind of the a most rough tumble mo- lot. Yeah, not a luxury setup at all. So pretty much any entertainment was welcomed. Right. Uh and along with the first prostitutes in town, there was also a theater troupe that arrived that was also welcomed, uh, because people needed all kinds of entertainment and they wanted diversion. Yes. So that was uh he he missed out on the first entertainment. Uh, really getting there. And since he was kind of setting out in the entertainment industry, it's a little... uh a little sad. A little bad luck on his mm-hmm. part that he was in prison at the time. Maybe he felt like he had to make up for lost time. <laughs> and, and that contributed to the things that happened later. But uh, he was released at the end of July, so all of that was happening within one month. And then the following month... Uh, that August of 1876, there was a lot of things. There were many, many things going on in Deadwood. Uh, on the 1st, Seth Bullock and Saul Starr arrived in Deadwood. Um, Bullock went on to become sheriff. Uh, because almost immediately after they got there, Wild Bill Hickok was murdered in Deadwood. And it made it apparent that they needed a lawman. Right. Uh, and those are also figures that you know most people that have studied any of the the black hills history would immediately recognize and it's just sort of interesting this is such a historical nexus point like mm-hmm. that summer really kind of was an explosion of events that kind of created a domino effect in many many ways right uh and we won't go into it here since we're focusing primarily just on uh sweringen but he and bullock always had sort of a an antagonist kind of dramatic and argumentative relationship where at one point there uh, have been stories that they actually drew a line down Main Street and one side was for one of them and one side was for the other I mean which is like you know a 70s sitcom but, right. that's exactly <laughs> but that it really game. is uh, you know something that, that allegedly happened at the time Right. so there's a lot of other interesting people at this point in history that I, I think it's such a rich sort of area to mine we may have to revisit it at some point in the future yes uh, so, a week and a half after Wild Bill died mm-hmm. is when Swearingen opened the Cricket Saloon. Yep. Uh, sadly, also on the same day as a smallpox outbreak hit. I'm telling you, August was very busy August that year. was a, a tough month. So, this was a kind of weirdly proportioned place to me. It was yeah. uh, reportedly 8 feet wide, 60 feet long. So, a very long, narrow place. Yes. Presumably to fit the lot he had purchased. Yes. Uh, but it doesn't stay that size because this is a man of ambition. And he almost immediately after the structure was completed, he started to expand the building. He wanted to provide a larger entertainment hall. Uh, and one of the things that he did as kind of a teaser of what sorts of entertainments were to come was that he would host in that small space bare knuckle boxing matches, mm-hmm. like really rough hardcore fights that got really extremely violent. And if you can imagine it crammed into that tiny space with a bunch of people betting and arguing and yelling and probably pretty intoxicated. Right. That's an intense scene. Yeah. So, yeah. Um Once he had expanded it, he changed the name to the Gem Variety Theater. Which is how it became known Pretty much throughout history, just as the gem, really. Right. right. That's the name that everybody still remembers and associates with him. Yeah. And it was, uh, so it stood on the corner of Wall and Main Street. Um, and remember, Deadwood was really barely coming together at this point. So it was really one of the formative buildings of the, the main square of town at that point. Yeah. Um, but here's what I find really interesting, because we do talk a lot, not just we, you and I, but... anybody that's interested in history, a lot of what gets talked about is Swearengin's CD Enterprises, of which there were many. But he also sort of envisioned himself as really like this purveyor of fabulous entertainment. Like, he really hired some pretty impressive acts to appear in his theater once it was complete. Like, I think he really thought he was setting up like the Western equivalent of Broadway. Right. Um, He booked African-American comedians Oscar Willis and Tom Jefferson. He booked an act called the McDonald's, which was a father-daughter roller skating act, which don't you wish you could time travel and see that. Uh, he booked trapeze artists. And he even hired uh, some of the Lakota to perform their war sal- scalp and squaw dances which I can only imagine what that entailed. right? Um, And of course, that was kind of like a shock theater experience, I imagine, for a lot of the people that were in Deadwood at the time. Well, and and so a lot of the people who were on the stage there were people who who might not have otherwise had a lot of opportunities to be on stage because of local prejudices and, and that sort of thing. So in that sense, the fact that he was giving opportunities to people who might not have been able to get a lot of performing gigs otherwise... One of the kind of good things. Although I have a sneaking suspicion that really it was about exploiting people that were desperate. Oh, <laughs> see, I, mean, I was it... trying to be positive because I know I know what's coming later. Well, here. we already called that as good work ethic, so that's okay. Yeah. Uh, he also hired a full band to play the hall, and after any of the variety acts performed, the chairs would be cleared and they would have dances. Right. Just kind of. I, I don't, it seems kind of quaint in its own way that mm-hmm. they would do that. Um, and he even had a couple of masquerade balls, uh, over the course of the gem's life, which is, that were apparently these huge, really extravagant, fabulous events. Right. Just sort of a little bit difficult to piece together. I know for me, like, Okay, so there were these wild acts, there was bare knuckle boxing, there were some prostitutes around, and then an extravagant masked ball. Yeah. It doesn't really all go together, but for him, it fit all perfectly naturally. Uh, It was also pretty lucrative. Yeah. And and he made a big success of it, so successful that he was able to open a sister saloon in Bear Butte, but Mm -hmm. that one was. Was, was it that that one was not successful or was it just too much? Because that one only stayed open for a couple of years. Yeah. Most, uh, accounts that I have read suggest that without him to really manage it, I mean, he was really the visionary Mm -hmm. and without him being able to be there every day, like he was at the gym, it just couldn't hold together. Right. It just, it it needed the leadership that he provided. Yes. The Uh, gym, on the other hand, reportedly handled more money in a day than the bank did. Yeah. Yeah. It was extremely popular, uh, You know, there have been rumors that it was even known in other countries. Like people in Australia had heard tales of this gem saloon and and people across the U.S. at the time had heard of it. And it's kind of fascinating to think about because Mm -hmm. that was not an age where we had the big advertising that we have now. We didn't have access to all of the information we have now. Yet the legend just spread on its own. Right. as people went and traveled the world. So he was recognized for having a pretty shrewd business acumen. But periodically, these weird little stories of him being oddly kind will pop up. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is one tale that he, um, one of the acts that he had hired had a daughter, and the daughter was horribly burnt in an accident, and that Al actually... Close down the gem for several days so that the girl could be there and convalesce and have someone constantly watching over her. Right. Which when you consider the amount of money he was making each day, that's a pretty significant sacrifice to make. Right. And I, uh, you know, we don't know why he chose to do that or why he would, you know, extend this odd courtesy to someone, but it, it does kind of switch out for a moment sort of the coloring of him as kind of a a heartless you know, entrepreneurial focused, like he only thought about the money. Well, and it it kind of reminds me to bring it around to something fictional. It kind of reminds me of Tony Soprano (laughs) and how occasionally he would do something really nice for one of the dancers at, at the, at at Bada Bing. And, you know, then he would cover up somebody getting beaten to death in the parking lot. Yeah. Like this, uh, that's sort of, is what Al Swearingen reminds me of a little. (laughs) Like, Occasionally something might happen that makes you kind of go, "Oh, that was good." Well, and I mean you you can't Presume even somebody that leads a pretty seedy life that they're not all mustache twirling, right? Caricature grade villains. A no. lot of, t- I mean, they're humans and they're likely to have moments where they are touched by an event or feel sympathy or empathy for other people. It's gonna happen. it's human. Yes. On the other hand, the gym was so rowdy that people would go there just to watch the fights. Yeah, not, not the fights like the boxing that we were talking about earlier. The fights among patrons who were angry at each other and drunk. Yeah, patrons, employees. Um, you know, sometimes between the patrons and the staff, sometimes staff on staff. Um, there is even a, a tale of two women that worked at the bar that got in a huge fight that culminated in shots being fired. But that, and I love this part, the steel boning in the intended target's corset actually deflected the bullet, mm-hmm. which is sort of just wonderful and hilarious. Uh, but yeah, and allegedly I think they were fighting over a man. But it's, I mean, that's a pretty, uh, that puts the wild in the wild west. Right. <laughs> for sure. I mean, just fights that break out among employees that lead to gunfire. Yes. That's- well, and also fights that broke out between Swearingen and other yeah. people. His employees and non-employees. There was a story about one patron, Thomas Clark, who had been thrown out for being abusive. He came back with a gun and Swearingen uh, disarmed him and then beat him up. <laughs> Yeah. and then was charged with assault and battery and found not guilty yeah um similar physical confrontations also happened with women that yeah. worked for him so he oh, was yeah. not he did not you know he he did not say okay, I'm only going to be like he wasn't, punching men he, he wasn't was punching gender biased everyone. about who he would throw a punch at for sure yes. Uh, yeah he kind of developed a reputation actually for being abusive of women um and it, it would come up in the press. The local paper would often comment that he had been seen you know hitting a woman or engaged in an argument with a woman and and they kind of berated him publicly for his behavior but mm-hmm. it didn't seem to really um stop any of it. It just made him hate the paper so yeah <laughs> so uh and there are also tales of all kinds of you know, specific instances of fights and deaths that happened at the gym. Um, There was a jealous lover murder-suicide. There was one instance that just kind of grosses me out where two women got in a fight and one woman carved up the face of another woman and allegedly even, you know, uh, a little eyeball scooping. Um, Yeah, it's pretty gross. And this one is really weird. There was a logger who keeled over dead after going to the bar and drinking, like, a shot of liquor. Mm-hmm. And initially it was questioned as to whether or not Swearingen was involved in something illicit, but it was determined that the logger had actually come in from working um out in the heat and had really quickly chugged ice water and then gone to get the alcohol and that it was actually the ice water that killed him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what an odd story to have attached to your business. Um, so he, so all of that had happened like right before he walked into the gym and ordered his drink. Um, and then of course, Calamity Jane was a figure that sometimes appeared at the gym. And there's one story of a night where she and Ike Brown came to the saloon and they were carrying the head of a Sioux that, uh, Brown had killed. This is really gory. So if you are, um touchy of stomach, just be aware, they allegedly were cutting off pieces of the head and selling them for a dollar a piece, which is just as gruesome as it gets. Um, And that there was even one story that I read where uh, Ike Brown had said that he was going to eat the remainder of the head. Like, it was really, really horrifying. Um, And apparently Seth Bullock was so horrified by the whole thing that he snuck in, stole the head from Brown, who was presumably drunk, and he actually buried it behind the gem because he just had had enough and thought it was way too gruesome. Right. (laughs) Gives me the shivers a little. So uh, through all of this, and it seems pretty insane to me, the (laughs) amount of abuse and fighting and deaths and horror that was going on in this place of business, there were still variety shows going on. Like there was still entertainment yeah. <laughs> coming in to perform there. Like I, I'm not quite sure how. And this may, you may be right that he it was not so much that he was giving opportunities to people that did not have them otherwise. It does seem kind of like people would maybe think twice about getting on the <laughs> stage when it was likely that you know the audience may get their firearms out halfway through yeah. and, and begin shooting one another yeah. during the performance. But then he hired a pretty accomplished theater man, uh, this thespian named Harry Montague, who was extremely accomplished, recognized, like he had, you know, his name was a brand in theater. And he really staged these huge and elaborate productions, including they did a version of the Mikado there mm-hmm. um that really kind of garnered some praise critically. Um But... When he left, things kind of started to fall apart a little bit. Right. It was almost like the theatricality had kind of rescued the gem's reputation a little bit. Or at least, you know, grown big enough that it, it, hid some of the other things. It had surpassed the, all of the crazy fights and right. bizarre selling of people's parts. And, uh, but Montague departed. He had left at one point, but then come back. But when he finally departed, the gem really started to flounder, uh, and they didn't have the huge stage shows to draw crowds. And so the profits dropped off because those people would stick around out to the show and drink. And without them there anymore, they just weren't making the same amount of money that they had been. Right. Um, And actually sold it for a little while and bought it back. Yeah, And somewhere in there, he also tried to make it into like an eatery, like a diner kind of thing. I mean, he was willing to do anything. Right. Again, I got to admire his work ethic, even though I think his other ethics were not so delightful. Uh, He really did want to make a a stab at kind of keeping it afloat and finding new ways to to profit from it. Um, But that was not even the first of the many problems that the gem kind of floated through and he did buy back the theater after he sold it. Um, And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
2: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
0: Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, what's good?
2: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with.
0: So you ride the books, and last on the business. I understand now, it's a wise man who uh, a wiser woman.
2: But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas.
1: Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth.
2: Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh!
1: Jean! Run!
2: So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your
0: podcasts.
1: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing, Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Apple podcast or wherever you get your podcast.
3: If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the marketing school podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. From the trenches, we share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: But for like 22 years, it was really a pretty successful establishment. Um, and was it was an institution in Deadwood, but... Disasters, even outside of interpersonal dramas, kept sort of hitting it in one way or another. Um, three months after it opened, it was burned when a lamp in a sign that swearingen had ordered, he had had it custom made and the lamp ignited. And uh, swearingen consequently refused to pay for the sign, but that comes back on him later.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then he, uh, in the Great Fire of 79, which started in a bakery that was nearby, and that fire burned 100 businesses and 75 homes in Deadwood. The gem was really badly damaged. And Sweringen swore that he would rebuild. And in just a couple of weeks, he had put up an entire new building. Right. It was only lacking a roof at that point. Uh, and he covered that by, a ca- with a canvas while he waited on the materials and permit, uh, the materials for his permanent roof. So he took advantage of those setbacks. And in that one in particular, he expanded the square footage. Uh, to include both a dance hall and a theater. Whereas the th- it had been the theater before and then they would clear chairs for dances. Right. Now it was like all of these things. He, he kind of kept turning lemons into lemonade in a way. Yeah, you didn't have to redo the whole room to be able to have something different yeah. in there anymore. After it was reopened, though, it was set upon by arsonists again. <laughs> uh, it's and not a long walk. It's really To not. presume that Swearengin had his fair share of enemies. Yes, he definitely did. Um... Uh, there were the arsonist came uh, some Chinese immigrant workers um put the fire out uh, in May of 1883 a rainstorm and melting snow flooded all of main street including the gym yeah uh, some buildings actually got washed away yeah um i think it was in rebuilding from that making repairs from that he he put a drain plug in the upper yeah. floors so that that might not be quite a problem anymore. Yeah. Um, and then another fire. Yeah, I mean, he had just, uh, a series of smaller floods and fires, um, that hit the building. But then in 1894, there was a really bad one, uh, when an employee of his tried to dry clean a suit using gasoline. Um, that was a thing that people used to do. I know, and I think. I'm not sure. I'll have to look it up. We might have an article on people doing something like that. I know there's a rift Tracks <laughs> short about people doing that. Um, but, yeah, that incident actually destroyed the top floor of the gym for good because it was not a single floor structure. So the top floor was gone forever after that point. But in the midst of all of this there had been, you know, we talk about the fighting and the, the bare knuckle boxing and the theater shows and the dances and the Drinking, but mm-hmm. there was a whole other lucrative business going on, which was Al's prostitution business. Yes, and this is really where I mean, uh, I, he was not a good guy. He really, in wasn't. a lot of ways, and with apart from all the illegal activities and the beating people and all that, I, I feel like some of the some of his worst dealings had to do with the prostitution business. Yeah, um, because what he would do is that he would advertise that he needed like female waitstaff uh girls and young women would come to deadwood to work as his waitstaff yeah a lot but, of them thought they were going to work in a swank hotel yeah it, they were not waitstaff wait jobs no. that he was recruiting for at all and so uh girls and young women would arrive they would learn that that, that was false there was there was no hotel staff job for them yeah they would not have the money or the resources to return home. So they would be stranded in, in Deadwood. And their choice was either to work as a prostitute or or starve. Like right. The, those were the choices at that point. Right. And he even, I mean, he did also hire experienced ladies of the night. But he also would often hire some of these stage troops with mm-hmm. the intent of trying to turn the female performers into his other employees. Right, As part of his prostitution dealings um just so squirrely. Yeah. Uh and the Black Hills Daily Times, who we mentioned before he was not on good terms with, uh, ran an article at one point entitled A Den of Prostitution Under the Guise of a Dance Hall stocked with unsuspecting and innocent girls engaged through misrepresentations by its bestial proprietor. There's a headline for you, nice and succinct. Yes. Uh And it basically kind of recounted the tale of one particular group of girls that were lured to Deadwood from Chicago, again, thinking they were going to work in a hotel, and then Swearingen locked them in their rooms mm-hmm. and basically... Um, Allegedly, townspeople heard about this and they liberated the girls and eventually sent them back home. Um, but the story, even though it was a total smear on Sweringen's name, I mean, it was intended as a smear piece, it really had almost no impact on his business. Right. His prostitution dealings continued to thrive. Um, and of course, like his other employee dealings, those women were often beaten. Yes. Uh, he didn't he He didn't discriminate on who he would hit at all uh and he would threaten them that if they ever tried to leave, he would bring threat ch- or uh, theft charges against them that he would claim that they had been stealing from the business, mm-hmm. and so a lot of women felt like they didn't have the recourse to fight a charge like that. You know they were all poor, they would all have like reasonable um um intent. Right. So they felt like most of them would lose, and they just kind of got stuck in that life, which really stinks. Yeah. Well, um, it's it's sort of further evidence of of the kind of character that he had, because while that was going on, he was continuing to dodge debts. We talked in the previous episode about how he often borrowed money, that then his business would fail and he would not pay back. And it it became clear in some cases that he had never intended to pay that money back. Yeah. Uh, That continued on. Um, his original debt from back in Iowa was finally tracked down to him in 1881 and he was forced to either pay up or go to jail. I'm guessing he paid up. Yeah. Did he pay up? Yeah. That became his like sort of de way of handling business is that he would enter these business contracts, never pay them. They pretty much had to take him to court and have it come to a point where if he did not pay, he was going to jail and then he would like grudgingly pay them. Right. And that was sort of his business model. Right. Which is a little bit, um, it's hard to think about that because, you know, no business could get away with that today. But it was a different time, of course. There was a man named Joseph Broghammer who in 1893, knowing that his M.O. was that he would say, I don't have the money to pay that back. Yeah. He instead decided that he would go um, after his property. Yeah. Um, He had done some work at the gym that he had never been paid for. And what he was awarded was uh, several horses and buggies, since he knew he was probably not ever going to get the money. Yeah, which is kind of a fascinating awardment. But yeah, here's some horses. Now, we did mention in the first part of this story, uh, in the previous podcast, that Swarajan had taken a wife when he was in Helena. And she kind of vanishes from the record a little bit. There's not much that we hear about her. But uh in 1878, her name does come up again, because in the Black Hills Daily Times, there was an announcement that Swearingen placed that read, My wife has left my room and board without provocation. All debts incurred by her will not be paid by me. Uh Basically, they had had a fight, and he was like, fine, go, you're on your own. Because mm-hmm. she apparently left that same day. However, she came back to him a few weeks later, and she stayed for two more years before she finally divorced him. Right. Um. And then remember again that the Times uh, were was not his friend. Uh there was a follow-up article after he after she finally left where they printed two letters that were um, written under a pseudonym mm-hmm. but everyone sort of believed it, it to be Nettie's letters about Al that she had written to her parents. Um or to her mother specifically. And it, they were printed under the name of Emmy instead of Nettie. And they basically just detailed the cruelties and indignations she suffered while living with him. Uh And it, there are some accounts that I've read that rumored that she, in fact, had friends on the Times, and so she kind of placed those as a final parting shot to him uh so that people would publicly have a record of all the horrible things that he did. Right. Uh, but she was not his only wife. No. No. On July 3rd, 1889, he married a 21-year-old woman named Odelia Turgeon. Um, when within six months, there were reports, again, that, that there was domestic abuse going on. Uh, and that uh, there were people who witnessed altercations between them in the street. And in one of which, uh, he choked and beat her. Um Several months after that, uh, she needed a doctor's care because of a serious hemorrhage. Um, and she survived. Uh, but not long after that, he divorced her claiming she had been unfaithful. Yeah. And it's weird. The accounts never say what type of hemorrhage it is. It's just listed as a severe hemorrhage. Right. So the suggestion there is that he once again beat her mm-hmm. and, you know, brought her apparently near death because, uh um, Many reports of it make it sound like she really was at death's door. And, you know, it was sort of miraculous that she rallied and survived. Yes. And then he had another really weird relationship uh with a woman named Hattie Lewis. And he, this relationship allegedly began when he stormed into her resort, and I'm using the air quotes, where he had spent the previous night claiming that he had been robbed of a thousand dollars and he started to destroy furniture and attempted to burn the building down. And he was stopped by an employee, but somehow in the midst of all of this, Swearingen and Hattie like took up together. Yes. I guess, you know, two extreme personalities sometimes are drawn together. Right. And usually we know how those relationships go and it's not so good. And this was not good at all. Uh, their, their relationship was not very happy for very long. They, it turned sour pretty quickly. And, uh, Hattie Lewis committed suicide with a uh, morphine overdose. Yeah. So, uh, he was not, um, Not really good news for women, ever. He He wasn't good news for anybody, his dealings with women were really rough. No. Uh, So, we're we're getting to the point of how much more bad stuff could this guy do? And and we're sort of also near the end of his story. Yeah. Um, In December of 1899, another fire tore through the gym. Uh, And this time, he did not rebuild it. I actually... There's a part of me that just takes this sort of schadenfreude... Gleefulness about this particular fire. Um, because it's a fire that started in in multiple places simultaneously. Yeah, witnesses saw the fire blaze up in, and some reports say five, some say six different spots at the same time. Uh, firefighters came and they miraculously could not find the wrenches to use to connect their hoses to the the water to the water. Yeah. Um, and so another fire department was called in who also could not the find their same wrenches. same problem. <laughs> yeah. So, hmm, how in the world could that have happened? Um. My first, in, in reading about that, my first response was like, did he do it for the insurance money? But that was not quite a thing then. It's much more likely yeah. that one of his many enemies took it upon yeah. themselves to do a very thorough job of burning down the gym. Yeah. He really had plenty by that point. Yes. Uh, so he finally decided it was not worth trying to rebuild again. That was it. Uh, so he left Deadwood and went to Leadville, Colorado, to meet up with his younger brother, Theodore, who also had a saloon. And he worked with Theodore for four years. Uh, so then his end is a little bit anticlimactic. Kind of, yeah. Because we don't really know for sure what happened. But his body was found in November of 1904 uh, adjacent to some streetcar tracks that were near Denver. And um, the initial observation, observation of the body suggested that he had died from a massive head wound from a blunt heavy object. But in the Oskaloosa Herald, it was reported that he had likely fallen while he was trying to board the motor car possibly having been hit on the head by some part of the train. However, he also reportedly had scratches on the side of his face, which I guess could happen, you know, if he fell and slid against the ground. Mm -hmm. But it kind of almost doesn't add up. I'm sure I'm not the only person who thinks he must have been attacked. Yeah, it's a little weird. It's sort of a strange way to go to just, you know, be found and for him to have been trying to board a streetcar and fall and died, but no one knew about that. They just found the body later. Yes. It could have happened. It I'm could have sure. happened that there just coincidentally were not any witnesses. Speaking up to what had happened. <laughs> maybe they had those wrenches that were lost from maybe so, uh, and maybe then that his, was the murder weapon. And then his body was eventually transported back to Oskaloosa for burial, which is where, uh, if you listen to the first part, he grew up as a pioneer child. Even though I believe his parents had divorced, but they were still both buried there together, uh, and then he was buried there with the rest of the family. Which is a, it is sort of a uh, such an anticlimactic end for so much drama in his life, mm-hmm. uh, but. We don't really know. It could have been a very climactic night of craziness. All we know is that he was found by the streetcar tracks. Right. So So that's the story of Hal Swearingen and his wild and woolly life. I mean, I can't even imagine. Yes. Well, and to have his actual life be even stranger and more dramatic and more full of crime and craziness. Than it's ever portrayed in fiction. Than it's ever portrayed in, in a Very expletive filled HBO show. Yeah, if you are interested in watching Deadwood, I really love it and highly recommend it, but uh, be ready if you are not comfortable with a lot of swearing, it is probably not the show for you, because they really floor it. I mean, they hold back nothing. Yeah, well, and it's, uh, rather than using swears that were in use at the time, which sound weird to people now. Yeah, they don't read the same. No, no, they use modern. They lots and you lots. have no questions of the intent of the language. Absolutely not. Although you know that show is written in iambic pentameter. Did not know that. Yeah, it's bizarre. Okay, you don't think of it, and then when you know it, you can't stop hearing. Well, now I'm. It's going to be stuck there in my head. <laughs> And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
2: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
0: Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, what's good?
2: much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with.
0: So you ride the books, Gene. And have last on our business. I understand now. It's a wise man. Uh, Marie is a wiser woman.
2: But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas.
1: Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on and its high time. You tell me the truth.
2: Freeze, Americano!
1: Gene! Huh? Oh! run
2: so travel before it's too late your money will return your time won't and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination listen to fodor's guide to espionage on the iheartradio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
1: hi there i'm bob Pittman, chairman and ceo of iheartmedia i'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast math and magic stories from the frontiers of marketing Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School Podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. is Listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And now I have some listener mail. Yes, you do. <music> I have two pieces and they are both about uh our Pope ben- Pope Benedict the Ninth podcast, which is about uh his renunciation of the papacy. And both are corrections, so I appreciate it. We have such awesome listeners. The first one is I found your episode on the other Pope Benedict very interesting. One thing I noticed is that you always mention the Pope as being a strictly spiritual leader. I think we mentioned briefly, I'm jumping out of the letter, um, that it wasn't it had more to do with power at that time, but we did not address this listener's specific correction so I'm very glad they wrote in uh, it says however for most of its history including Benedict the ninth period the Holy See owned the papal States the Pope was a secular and a spiritual leader since he needed to manage the papal States as well as hold the role we now know for we know him for uh, it is only in 1870 that the papal States were fully incorporated into the then newly born Italian state and in 1929 that the Vatican renounced any claim on the papal States in Benedict the ninth day being Pope was more than leading souls it was being a Major landowner and managing or reaping the benefits of very lucrative lands on top of the wealth deriving from tithing and numerous donations to the church. Keep up the good work, Zara. Uh, yeah, I um I completely blipped right over that. Uh, I mean, we did kind of talk about Benedict the Ninth not really being the most spectacular spiritual leader, so but I did not talk about the politics of uh, mm-hmm. that being not just a um a religious seat at the time. So thank you for that correction. And the other one is from our listener Brooke from Florida. And Brooke says, I was listening to your podcast on Pope Benedict IX, and I just wanted to let you know that the proper term isn't resigning because that would indicate a higher power. And there's no higher power within the church on earth. The proper way to say what happened is that the Pope renounced the office of the papacy. Anyway, just wanted to correct that. Great podcast. Keep it up. Yes, that is absolutely also accurate. I tend to not attribute it to Benedict IX, though, because uh, his behavior was not really what I would categorize as... A high bar. <laughs> it yes. was a little, uh it's a little dicey. So, I think that's just sort of one of those mental jumps that I'm like, yeah, it doesn't apply to him. But it is absolutely the correct uh, terminology to s- call it a renunciation. Although I have noticed in the coverage of the, uh, he's no longer the current Pope Benedict, but Pope Benedict the 16th that just stepped down. They, uh, the press uses resigned a lot, and I, I don't know if that's just a desire to be um, uh, neutral and not sort of engage the. The language that is most accepted by the Catholic Church or not. I don't, I would have to ask the editors of all other Press outlets. I kind of want to ask the editor of the AP style guide. they might have a thing they, no, they might we should do that. So uh, thanks to you both Brooke and Zara for those awesome corrections because those are uh, important and maybe not always recognized differences from you know what we did. Uh, if you'd like to write us you can do so at historypodcast at You can also follow us on Twitter at mist in history and we are also on Facebook at facebookcom historyclassstuff class stuff. If you want to learn a little bit more about something we talked about today, it's not the most upbeat topic, uh, you can go to our website and type in human trafficking in the search bar and the article How Human Trafficking Works will come up, which is drained to the Alice Engine story since he did some kind of creepy things with people. Uh, you can also research almost anything else your heart desires, hopefully more upbeat than that, at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
1: apple podcast or wherever you get your podcast i am the ferryman
2: in the shadows of the afterlife the ferryman of souls guides america's most influential spirits to their eternal rest
3: where are you taking me
2: are you death this
1: road is not on any map how much for a ticket